Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today, I have another just fantastic guest. With me, I have Dr. J.P. Moreland. He's the distinguished philosopher of, uh, professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University in La Mirada, California. He actually has four earned degrees, uh, a BS in chemistry from the University of Missouri, a THM in theology from Dallas Theological Seminary, an MA in philosophy from the University of California, Riverside, and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Southern California. He served on staff with Crew Campus Crusade for Christ for 10 years, a ministry which I'm uh, currently being employed by, and I love them. So that's fantastic. And he's published just an insane number of books and articles. And if I were to go through them, they would take the rest of our podcast time. So I can't do that. But uh, most recently, I believe his most recent one is Scientism and Secularism. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of articles that we could talk about as well. But what we're going to be talking about today is uh, his book and um, his argument from consciousness. So Consciousness and the Existence of God, a Theistic Argument. And this is a a Routledge book. Uh, He also has, has published that in The Companion to Natural Theology. Uh, you can find a, a shorter version of it there. So without further ado, Dr. Moreland, thanks for, for coming on the podcast here. Well, Parker, I'm honored to be here. Yeah, so I'm I'm really excited about uh, this topic, and I'm really excited about it because of, of you, actually, because of you and Dallas Willard. And so I think I've heard this passed down uh, first from you, that Dallas Willard said, you know, one of the most important uh, aspects that a Christian philosopher can work on is is philosophy of mind or consciousness. Am I getting that right? Uh, yes. He, he, uh, he did believe that it was very, very important to, to work on that and mm. to not leave it entirely to psychology or other fields. Yeah. And especially important to him was how the mind connects with its objects. Mm. Uh, and he wanted to insist that we actually make direct contact with the world. We, we don't go by means of light waves or anything like that, although they may need to happen. Yeah. Uh, so yes, you're right. Uh, that, that was important to him. Um, so, so uh, Robert Lawrence Kuhn of, of closer to truth. Uh, a lot of, a lot of my listeners will be familiar with him on YouTube. He, he seems to discuss conscious consciousness more than any other topic. And he, he always talks about how he's obsessed with it. Um, and he thinks it might be the last refuge for theistic arguments. And, I disagree with him on that point. I think there are other good arguments uh, out there as well. But I agree with him in uh, the importance of consciousness and the study of consciousness. Uh, I'm I'm definitely with him in emphasizing that importance. How did you get into studying consciousness? Well, when I I took my PhD, my MA and PhD in philosophy, I had a a really, really solid uh, background in metaphysics and epistemology and uh, philosophy of science uh, with a good dose of history of philosophy. Um, I had a little bit of training in Phil Mind, mm-hmm. but, but uh, uh, so when I got out uh, of my graduate program and I began to teach, uh, I began to read some Christian books by uh, people in what was then called the American Scientific Affiliation. Mm-hmm. Uh, who were sort of uh, uh, becoming physicalist Christians. And the idea made no sense to me, and uh, uh, it still doesn't, though I have a much, much more profound understanding now as to what Mm -hmm. they held. So I thought that uh, this was an example of revisionism, Mm. of common sense, and of the Bible. And I wanted to see if the biblical teaching— could be subjected to uh, serious criticism. So I started reading everything I could get my hands on in philosophy of mind. And uh, 
read books as to what I thought of physicalist arguments and so on. Mm-hmm. So, and then I began to realize, and I'll close with this. I began to realize that this was uh, an underrepresented area yeah. for especially evangelical thinkers. And it was important for us to be present in that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. that, that that's really important. And, and I totally agree with you probably because I've been so influenced by your work. Um, how do you understand the philosophy of mind. Can you locate it for us in this broad scope of philosophy? You know, is it is it a subset of metaphysics? Is it its own discipline alongside? Is it an intersection between epistemology and metaphysics? What, what do we do with it? Where where is it? Yeah, that's a great question, Parker. Um, well, it it actually uh, began, I would say, as a subset of metaphysics, but mm. uh, it branched off, and. Uh, for some time now, I'm going to say for 70 years mm-hmm. at least, it's been its own area of philosophy. So uh, you can, there are courses in philosophy of mind. You can get a PhD in that sub area. Yeah. Uh, and so, but but to do it properly, uh, you need epistemology and metaphysics mm-hmm. uh, because those are treasure troves of resource. Uh, to, to have in place when you approach this field. Yeah. So, so that, that, that's basically, it's, it's own, got its own vocabulary now and so on, but it does borrow from yeah. these other uh, historical fields. Okay. And as, as it's become its own discipline, um, do you think, has that helped or, or has it hindered uh, the study of, of the philosophy of mind? I can, I can imagine uh, it being, hindered because it's it's on its own little section and you don't have to worry as much about the epistemology or metaphysics but maybe i'm i'm just guessing there no you're actually quite right about that um i mean the good news is that it is uh allowed uh uh philosophers and theologians to focus their attention Mm -hmm. on a narrower range of issues and that's that's a good thing but the price that you pay for that is as you pointed out uh, you don't bring to it uh, the, the proper background categories that will help you yeah. uh, think for yourself. So the, 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 the cash value of your observation is that philosophy of mind has sadly been dominated uh, by those who are kind of committed to scientism. Yeah. And, and to be, uh, you may not believe this, but uh, it, bec- it's, it was – increasingly the case that PhDs in philosophy were not getting trained in broad metaphysics. And wow. so they would, they, they, I, I can tell you like Paul Churchland and uh, others mm-hmm. uh, who are well known in the field and they're atheists and materialists uh, their 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 writings are really weak, uh, yeah. and they're they're pretty. I mean, my grad students read some of it and say, "This is, are you kidding me?" And, <laughs> and I say, "No, this is MIT Press. <laughs> this isn't some Chigger Creek Bible College Press down in Arkansas, you know, yeah. or, or whatever." Right. So uh, you're right. It's 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 good news and bad news, but I think it's ultimately bad news. Yeah. Well, it, is that a is that a hangover? The the, the them not being grounded in metaphysics uh, is that a hangover from like logical positivism, and they they thought that they don't need to, or was that a uniquely scientism? Is is there a connection between those two that is well, cut yeah. off? Yes, um, it was a hangover from logical positivism, but logical positivism uh, pretty much went the way of the dodo, right? Uh, but it was replaced with scientism okay. and. Uh, so uh, you're, as a result, um, science was given uh, virtually by so many philosophers uh, the task and the authority of defining reality. And the mm-hmm. philosopher's job was merely to analyze the concepts that yeah. were used in scientific theory or ethics. We don't make claims about what re- reality. Mm-hmm. We make claims about our talk about reality. Or yeah. thinking about reality. Well, I'd rather be a bartender, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. than, than if that's all I'm doing. So, right. so yeah, that's what happened. But there's been a revival of metaphysics now going on for probably 30 years. Yeah. Thank God for it. And Seriously. now it's a robust field of its own. 
and things are getting better. Yeah, that's that's really good to hear. So as we jump into uh, your argument uh, for God from consciousness, uh, can we define? Can you help us define consciousness so we have a better idea what we're talking about? Yeah, there there are uh, three ways to define it, and then uh, a fourth <laughs> that. <laughs> And so, so one way some people try to define consciousness as any state, con- uh, some state C is a state of consciousness, mm-hmm. just in case it has intentionality or ofness. So it's about something. Yep. So the claim, and I think this is right, that no physical or brain state is about anything. Yeah. Uh, but but conscious states are of. Uh, I'm thinking of London, or my sensation is about the lamp, or of the lamp. Uh, the problem with that definition is that there are some conscious states that don't appear to have intentionality, like an itch. Uh, mm. Itches don't seem to be about anything, but it is a, it is a, 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 something caused it, but that's yep. different than it being about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say that uh, intentionality is a sufficient condition, but not necessary. Okay. Another way um, is to define it in terms of being a state to which the subject has, uh, in, uh, has private access so that I can have a third-person uh, descriptive knowledge of everything physical because anything physical is a public object. It's yep. publicly accessible to all of us, including my brain states. But my conscious states are accessible to me alone in the, in the basic way and others know about my conscious states in a derivative way. Namely, I report I report them to them or I give off body language mm-hmm. and they infer I'm in pain or something of that sort. I think the best definition of consciousness, uh, uh, if you're going to try to define it, is mm-hmm. that some con- state C is a state of consciousness just in case there is a what it is like to be in C – now, um, I believe that every conscious state has its own what's called phenomenological texture. Uh, there's a what it's like to be in pain. There's a what it's like to be thinking about London. And that's different than the what it's like to be thinking about a vacation in Hawaii. Now, if there were no detectable differences between those two thoughts, Parker, then I would not be able to mm-hmm. tell the difference or know what I was thinking about by simple introspection. So I can tell you yeah. what the difference is between those two thoughts or in which one I'm thinking about by simply paying attention to the thoughts themselves. Thus, there has to be something uh, that, that, that is uh, uh, detectable. And they call that the, what it's like to pain, and that differs from what it's like to tasting a, a strawberry or tasting a lemon or smelling a rose. Mm-hmm. or having a desire for ice cream or whatever it might be. Uh, the fourth definition yeah. is is actually telling because it's what the dualist would predict. And that's that t- at the end of the day, consciousness is actually defined ostensibly by just simply pointing to an example of it. So if a person's been anesthetized mm-hmm. in an operation and they're starting to wake up and they feel a throb and they sense they're thirsty and they can – hear noises, they feel a desire for a drink, and they're thinking, I don't. I believe I'm still at home, but I'm not sure. Where am I? Uh, what's happening is they're regaining consciousness. What is consciousness? It states like that. Hmm. So ostensive definition is when you define something by pointing to examples of it. Now, why is that important? Well, we often were able to define one thing in terms of something else, like a bachelor can be defined as an unmarried male. Mm-hmm. An electron can be defined as uh, an object, or, uh, a particle wave that has a certain rest mass and a certain charge. Now, um, matter is typically capable of being defined in terms of other things, like any state of the brain can be defined in terms of such and such neurons that have calcium ions and so on. Mm-hmm. You, but, but eventually you don't want to, and you've got to stop the infinite regress or the circle. And you have to learn, you have to define your basic terms by simply pointing to them in the world. Mm-hmm. And you can't define, there's nothing more basic 
in terms of which you could define them. And yeah. so my view is that conscious states, the dualists would predict that my conscious states would be just basic to me. I mean, if I were born blind, I, you could not define what it's like to see red to me. Yeah. I, just would, I would have no notion of what you were talking about. Yeah. So, so it's, it's consciousness is defined ostensibly, but brain states aren't. So conscious states can't be brain states. Mm, yeah. So that's yeah. just a quick answer to the, the four definitions. And yeah, it's, that's really helpful. So, uh, so for the the listeners there, um, the the first definition about uh, intentionality, something that's about uh, aboutness, uh, is sufficient, but it's not necessary because, as Dr. Moreland said you have uh, itches, which don't seem to be about things. Maybe you could argue it's about your skin and this location feeling an itch, but, you know, uh, philosophers can eat your lunch on that. Um, so it, uh, the itch can be uh, a necessary condition even for the itch is the aboutness principle, that that third one, that there are, sorry, uh, what it's likeness. Yes. So there's something that it's like to oh, experience yeah. an itch. And, and I have private access to it. Yeah, you actually don't know for sure what it's like for me to feel an itch. Right. right. Uh, you can reason that we're an awful lot alike, and mm -hmm. uh, by analogy, you can, and so you're likely to know. But but I have a way of knowing it. You don't. Right. I I'm aware of it. <laughs> so yeah. you're absolutely right. I, yeah. I agree with you 100. So with that, with that private access, uh, and uh, immediately I have uh, Wittgenstein in my head and, and the Beetle in the box. Um, uh, some some philosophers of mind have used that beetle in the box to argue against private access. Um, I don't I don't think I put this on our on our outline, but could you explain um, whether that succeeds or fails? Well, um, Wittgenstein advanced something called the private language argument, mm -hmm. and uh, it actually has two forms. One of them is called uh, uh, the the rule following form, and the other's the beetle in the box form. Mm -hmm. Now I'll address the beetle in the box form, and uh, so suppose everybody had a little a little box on the top of their head, and uh, uh, and nobody was allowed to look in anybody else's box, and everybody said that they had a beetle in their box. And you were you knew you had a beetle in your box because you let's say you were able to, to look into it and you could see the beetle was there. Mm -hmm. uh, and then but other people, all you could see is that they would put certain kinds of they'd raise the lid and put food in it. Mm -hmm. And then a little bit later, they they'd raise the lid and clean out, uh, clean out the box. Yeah. And that's all you were able to see. Well. You would not be able to know what they meant by the word beetle because you don't really have access yeah. to what's in their box. And, and you can infer from their inputs and outputs because you're feeding them the same food, your beetle the same food they are, and, and you're, the same stuff's coming out. So you uh -huh. they will, you know, there's a... But, but Wittgenstein says, but you can't really, you never can really know for sure mm -hmm. other what's in other people's box. Well, the same with, with the mind. And thus, if, if dualism is right and our conscious states are private to each individual, I can never know exactly or completely what you mean right. when you say I'm feeling pain right now or I'm happy or I'm thinking that pee because uh, I can't get inside your box to see what that actually is. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the answer to this is, uh, first of all, that this is exactly what you would expect if dualism were true. And, yeah. and indeed, it is true. I remember in uh, fifth grade, uh, when my daughter was, one of my daughters were in was in fifth grade, we were sitting around having a prayer time, uh, my wife and I, my two daughters, and my daughter, Allison, said, Dad, I got a question. She said, how do we know that when mom looks at, at things that are blue and, and, and she tells us they look blue, but that, that they don't look red to her? How do we know that she sees things the way we do? 
my point is not that we can't know, although I do agree we can't know for certain. I, I admit that. Mm-hmm. But whoever thought, besides Descartes, that to know something, you had to be 100% certain about it. Right. I, I don't believe that. Uh, so it doesn't bother me. But the point she was making is there is an intuitive obviousness that we all know that we don't know for sure what's inside that other person's mind. Yeah. And I think that and there's absolutely nothing you can do to measure their brain that will tell you what it is. Yeah. And uh, if, if people do uh, determine what's in a person's mind by measuring their brain states, that's only because they built up a chart where they've repeated, they've measured various brain states and asked the person to tell them what was going on inside of them. And so they coordinate the mental state and the brain state. And they do a bunch of those, but they don't know what the mental state is unless the person tells them. They don't have access to it. Well, then you could predict what was in the mind by seeing that brain state again, but that's dependent upon the very point I'm making. Yeah. Now, the answer to it is then that this this actually is what's really true of us. So that does is this this confirms dualism. And the second answer is that it 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 goes from something being a problem to being an impossibility. Hmm. And I think that that's just a problem with skepticism in general. So I see this beetle in the box problem as a problem with of skepticism and not unique to the mind. I mean, a person mm-hmm. can run the same argument about the existence of an external world. Yeah. Um, how do I know that, that I'm real, but that you're not an illusion in my mind because I'm a brain in a vat. Right. So, I mean, there's nothing unique about the mind here. My answer is that the burden of proof, I know a whole lot of things, I'm sorry, and there's a burden of proof on the skeptic. I don't share a burden of proof because I know things. Even if I don't know how I know them, I can still know many things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I approach epistemology, it, it, I do it from the vantage point of the fact that I come to the table already knowing that I, that I know things by memory. I had coffee this morning. Two and two is four, and so on. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think the best account of this is that we start with with the first person, and I'm aware of my inputs and outputs. I get stuck with a pin. I'm aware of what happens in the middle. I yeah. feel something, and I have an output. I go, ow, ow. Well, I look at you and others, and we seem to be a lot like alike. There's an awful lot about us that is very, very similar. Mm-hmm. So when I see certain inputs come into you and there are certain outputs, it makes it stands to reason that it's highly likely that what's going on inside you, when you're stuck with a pin and you say, oh, it's just what's going on inside of me when I'm stuck with a pin. So I believe, am I certain? No. But then that's what the duelist would predict. But I do know what you're asking me when you ask me a question or whatever yeah. it might be. Yeah. Well, that's really helpful. And and uh, for the listeners who are uh, a little bit lost, uh, when when Dr. Moreland talks about dualism, he he's referring to substance dualism, that you are not just your physical body, but you are a substantial soul. You have an immaterial aspect to you. And uh, we would reason that that's the, the most important thing about you, actually, is that you're, you are a soul. One quick uh, qualification, and yeah. you're right. Uh, uh, but at that that argument and what I was talking about with that argument has to do with property dualism, not substance. Okay. Property dualism is the idea that my mental properties, like being a sensation or being a thought or being a desire or being a belief uh, or an act of free will, that these different properties I have uh, that form conscious states, a state of pain, a state of thinking, are the debate about what is consciousness. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're asking the question, what is the thing that has consciousness uh. or is the owner and unifier, then that's a debate about the legitimacy of substance dualism. Okay. That I have a self. It's absolutely crucial. Yeah. And, and so that distinction uh, is really important. So you, um, there are, f- correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think that there are folks who are property dualists who are not substance dualists. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, strict physicalism uh, is 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 increasingly uh, falling out of favor, and that's yeah. because 
uh, it's just been, it's clear that certain conscious states just cannot be described at all in physical neuroscientific or physics and chemistry language. Yeah. They're different. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but a pain just isn't the same thing as the brain, a C fibers firing in my brain. Right. I can totally describe both of them and they have nothing in common. So it's obvious there's a cause effect relationship between the two, not identity. They're not the same. Yeah. So you're right, but people have not wanted, uh, there's still some resistance to property dualism. My consciousness isn't physical, but it's the brain that has it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but, but, but there is widespread re, uh, resistance to the idea that the owner or possessor of consciousness is a self or an yeah. ego or an eye or a soul. Yeah. That's, uh, that's getting too close to the God word. And, uh, People, people avoid it like the plague. Well, Dr. Moreland, um, not, I've noticed, and, and through your work, and I'm glad that you're pushing back, but, but Christians are pushing back on that and going, oh, we're, not, we're not Descartes. We don't, want, we don't believe in substance dualism. It's like, what are you guys doing? Stop. And there's this, this rise in Christian physicalism, like you had mentioned earlier, um, and a lot of the biblical scholars are jumping into philosophy and saying, well, you know, this is what we, we should, the, the Bible warrants a, a physicalist picture. And um, that's why I'm, I'm just so grateful for, uh, you, you came here to TED's last year or two years ago and did a debate on this. And I thought it was so important to, to push back on that and say, no, we need some philosophy here. We need to get straight. And dualism is not a dirty word for Christians. Absolutely. In fact, it's been what we've held for 2000 years. Right. Uh, I think, uh, here's a good example of what you're talking about, Parker. Uh, N.T. Wright, uh, who I uh, admire deeply, mm-hmm. but he wrote a book, uh, 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 and in it he he completely, I believe, demonstrated that the New Testament teaches that when you die, you enter a disembodied intermediate state, mm-hmm. and eventually you will have a resurrected body at the final resurrection. So he called that life after life after death. There's life after death. When you die, you go into a disembodied state. Uh, and then there's life after that life after death. And that's the final state when we'll all have resurrected bodies. Now, he read a paper at a, at a conference at Fordham University a handful of years ago where he basically said, I, I absolutely have no Take no stock in dualism. I don't. I believe it is a foreign idea. Hmm. The Bible doesn't teach anything about it. In fact, the Bible is against it. Uh, so I would not say that I'm a, a substance dualist of, uh, by any means. Yeah. But then in the paper, he goes on and says, well, Paul says that whether I was in my body or not, I don't know, but I went to the third. So Paul obviously knew he could survive his body. And in 2 Corinthians, you know, to be absent from the bodies, present with the Lord. And he said that means that when you die, there you enter a disembodied state. So you're looking at yourself thinking, what in the world is he doing? Yeah. Well, a little reading shows that his problem was he didn't have any training in philosophy. And he didn't consult the philosopher before he went public with his publication. And I just published an article in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society kind of chastening my biblical scholars and theologian friends for not uh, helping themselves the philosophical aid before they go doing this. And so what, 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 I'll close with this, but what Wright did was he thought dualism meant platonic dualism. Yeah. which teaches that the the body is evil and only the soul is good, that the ideal state will be disembodiment forever. Who would want to have a resurrected body again? Mm-hmm. So that's the way Plato's dualist. And I agree that the, while he got some things right, I'm not a platonic dualist. Right. But there are at least five different versions of dualism, out, substance dualism out there today. And no, none of no dualist I know of for the last hundred years has been a platonic dualist. So he rejected dualism, thinking it was platonic dualism, and it was just a simple undergraduate mistake. Yeah. But here he is, a world class New Testament scholar, and that illustrates how much they need to 
team up with some of us that have some philosophical training and work on joint projects. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I, I see a little bit the other way too, with some, some Christian philosophers who kind of go off the rails on some weird stuff that the church has never believed. And uh, yeah, we need to, we need each other uh, for sure. And um, I, I love it. I, I, I That's why I appreciate your work so much. And what I appreciate is that you, in, in this book, the uh, consciousness and the existence of God, it's not written to lay Christians. It's not lit, written to uh, theologians uh, specifically. It's written to philosophers and it's written in, in high level philosophy. Maybe you have a, a different uh, understanding of who it's written to uh, from no, your in your box. <laughs> I agree with you. Okay. Okay. So um, I really appreciate that because it's so important to be able to do it on the high level and then be able to bring it back down. And so um, I wanted to, to just jump in right away on your argument from consciousness and, and talk about uh, naturalism and the irreducibly irreducibility of consciousness. Um, so, uh, just uh, first off, what what is naturalism, and and can you give us your weak and strong definitions? Right, um, there are there's a cottage industry of versions of naturalism, but the version of naturalism that I think is the most consistent one to hold, mm-hmm. and that most naturalists should hold to, and I think most do, is what I call strict or strong naturalism. <laughs> And that's basically the idea that the physical universe uh, is of uh, particles or wavicles standing in conglomerations uh, that are drawn together by force Mm. and fields uh, is all there is. So there's nothing that isn't physical, nothing. Now, um, a weak version Uh, of naturalism would say that we are willing to allow that there might be some what are called emergent properties, meaning that when matter reaches a certain level of complexity, a completely brand new kind of property that has never been seen in the history of the universe appears. Uh, And that might be uh, conscious states or intrinsic value or, or, or whatever it might be. And so as long as whatever emerges is dependent on and grounded in the physical, so the physical is what does all of the work, then then we're going to allow for a little bit of emergence as long as physical things are basic and yeah. fundamental. That's, that's a weaker version, uh, uh, but it's still naturalism because they're allowing uh, uh, matter to be the creator of everything else. Mm. And um, you can't just be a naturalist and say, I don't believe in God. You have to give an account of what exists and how it got here. And their view is basically either everything's physical or there are a few cases of emergence. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in those cases, matter is still the fundamental reality. Uh, So if the brain goes out of existence consciousness will dis- will will be annihilated yeah. that kind of thing okay and and i've i've seen some people describing uh, emergence and saying emergence um it's actually really fun you can get a lot of cool emergence scenarios you can uh, people make faces out of a bunch of different dye and you kind of yeah. pull back and see a face there and they say you know water is an emergent property you're putting all these uh, H2O molecules together, but is one H2O molecule wet? Well, no, it's not. But you put them all together, and a, at some point, uh, if you get past the uh, you you get past the paradox of the heap, and you you have this wet emergent property, and and just like that, so so our mind uh, comes from emergence. So you would say that that's maybe the uh, the most consistent uh, naturalistic or physicalist. No, I think this. I think the denial that wetness is real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and reduce it to viscosity. Uh, so I think that uh, I, if I uh, uh, Frank Jackson wrote a book yeah. from metaphysics to ethics. He's a leading materialist, and he said, "If you're going to be a naturalist, you can't allow anything into your ontology that isn't physical." Yeah. So that means we have to get rid of truth and semantic meaning. That is the meaning of sentences. Mm. Uh, we have to get rid of secondary qualities, colors and tastes, and reduce them to wavelengths and all that sort of thing, can't have consciousness. It can't have moral intrinsic value. I think he's right. 
Hmm. And the reason he argued this is that if you have these things, there's absolutely no explanation for where they could come from. Yeah. None. And there never will be. If you hmm. start with, if you have in the beginning were the particles and history is a rearrangement of the particles into larger, more complicated uh, uh, aggregates of particles. Guess what? Hmm. What you're going to end up with are complicated aggregates of particles. If you start getting something new coming into existence, that's getting something out of nothing. Yeah. And that you, you just can't get something from absolute nothing. Yeah. Uh, and so matter doesn't have consciousness in it uh, for the naturalist. Yeah. So anyway, I do think emergence is, is not really a solution. Mm-hmm. It's a name for the problem. And to be honest with you, Parker, I think that if you see a new property, one that in no way characterizes matter, uh, it, like being wet or, mm-hmm. or being a taste of a lemon, I think that those are not emergent. I think they are indications that we have a new substance in existence. Mm. Now, what's happened is there has been substantial change so that uh, consciousness is, is owned by a soul it's not an emergent property owned by the brain. Right. And wetness is a property owned by water construed in a substantial way uh, rather than breaking it down into a mere aggregate of molecules. And there yeah. are reasons to do that, and I don't care to go into it right now. Yeah. But if you'll grant me that it may be that water is a new substance – Mm-hmm. then maybe it has wetness in, is a sign that we got something new going on here at the substance level. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really helpful. And yeah. Yeah. I think you're right to avoid the uh, getting us into myriology and, and the different uh, yeah. Yeah. part whole uh, properties right, there. Right. right. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's really helpful. So um, just to, just to be clear. So you, you would think that um, the, that while naturalistic uh, physical explanations, physicalist explanations are ultimately unsatisfying, that the the their best shot is emergence, even though it is a redefining. It's just stating the problem, but that's their best shot. Uh, as far as I can tell, it yeah. is. Okay, yeah, so that, that's why so many naturalists are changing and moving toward panpsychism, right? Which is the idea that every little unit of matter, all the way down to electrons, has its own consciousness yeah uh and that's not really a naturalist view that's always been an alternative but the reason they've done that is that gives them a way of trying to explain how consciousness could arise in our lives by postulating that it is as fundamental as elect negative charge so they don't say in the beginning where the particles they say in the beginning were the conscious particles, yeah. so they don't have to explain getting something from nothing. They have other problems, but that, at least that isn't one of them. Yeah, and so, uh, so if if an essential feature of a of a particle or a string or wherever you're going with the deepest level of reality is yeah. uh, consciousness, it doesn't mean that each one has its own perspective. But once you put these together, uh, then you can get consciousness emerging out, or at least as the story says. Well, yes, but it, they, each little particle or string or whatever does have consciousness, its own. Hmm. Okay. But it's not as as developed and as uh, vital or vivid as ours. So, yeah. for example, an electron doesn't know, isn't aware of its being an electron. And it doesn't think that proton over there looks awfully attractive. Hmm. Um, but it might have what's called a diminished or attenuated state of consciousness relative to it kind of entity it is. Yeah. So maybe an electron has a very vague feeling of attraction Hmm. towards a proton. It's not like me being attracted to, you know, some food I like or an attractive woman uh, it, it, it's it's not that vivid, but they do have. There is an electron attraction, and it's a, it is a conscious state. Hmm. Uh, and all units of matter, a desk has its own consciousness, uh, but it's not like yours and mine. Right. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense uh, from from their perspective. Yeah. So um, 
so continuing on, um, I want to talk about, um, well, to me, it seems like most, if not all, uh, physicalist uh, projects are reductionistic in some sense, meaning that to, in my mind, they're reducing down to the physical. And it's it's odd for me to think of Frank Jackson as being that kind of a luminous because of his Mary story. Yeah, well, it seems to point out that there's a, there's something that can't be eliminated there. Well, yes, he abandoned that argument later for okay. very good reasons. I mean, uh, nobody has been persuaded by his arguments, but he gave it up precisely because his colleagues began to say to him, look, if you let the camel's nose under the tent, mm. now you've got an explanatory problem that science will never explain. Yeah. And you may need another worldview to explain it, and that's a theistic one, most likely. Mm. Or maybe you better avoid that altogether. So he realized the implications of his property dualism, and he got rid of it as quickly as he could. But it wasn't that the argument wasn't good. It's been rigorously defended, rigorously, and it's a very good argument. Yeah, my listeners will know that uh, I did an episode. Does God know what it's like to eat a Chicago-style hot dog? And we went over his his argument. So, so my listeners will be will be familiar with Frank Jackson and, and his uh, yeah. what Mary didn't know. So, um, can you explain to us uh, why, uh, if you haven't covered the the naturalist grand story for us yet, if there's something that missing missing in there, then then please uh, fill us in with that. But why are naturalistic explanations of consciousness unsatisfying and um, what about the the irreducibility of consciousness? That's a couple questions for you. Well, the naturalist gives us a creation story of how everything came about. And the details don't matter, but the, the, there are three characteristics that are crucial to it. One of them is that it is uh, all causes and all effects are events. Mm-hmm. So an event like the flashing of lightning causes the splitting of a tree. Um, The jumping of an electron to a new orbital causes such and such. So the history of the world is a history of earlier events causing subsequent events according to the laws of physics and chemistry. And the history of the world are chains of events. Mm. Now, what's missing is agents as substantial selves causing anything. They don't believe substances or agents or eyes or anything like that cause things. It's states that or events that cause things. Secondly, there is no uh, there is no teleology. Nothing happens for the sake of an end mm-hmm. or a reason. Uh, and uh, I believe that reasoning occurs for the sake of an end. When I go through a process of deliberation, like I'm evaluating an argument and I'm weighing the arguments for and against it and what I'd say, I do all of that for five minutes, let's say, for the sake of discovering the truth or a reasonable conclusion. So reasoning is done for the sake of an end, having a satisfying answer. Yeah. Therefore, reasoning can't be a, something that's a physical activity. Yeah. So, so anyway, it doesn't have teleology. And then um, all processes are what are called combinatorial, mm-hmm. that's a fancy word to say that they involve the, the combination of tiny things into little larger things. Yeah. Atoms, uh, subatomic particles into atoms, atoms into molecules, molecules into biological organisms, planets. So the history of the world can be described as a history of combinations into larger, more complex combinations. Now, it's it's pretty well been recognized that consciousness. Well, first of all, that that story leaves out free will. Mm-hmm. Uh, understood in the common sense way. It leaves out doing something for the sake of an end or a purpose. And we all do that. People are watching this for the sake of learning something. Uh, And uh, also uh, what this means is that there is no room for things to appear that can't be explained as just an arrangement yeah. of 
new particles. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is that conscious states are simple. They're not complex. Now, let me illustrate. Yeah. Um, when I'm feeling a pain, there is a state going on in my brain called a certain set of neurons named C-fibers are undergoing electrical firing together. Now, let's just call that the property of being a C-fiber firing. That's what's happening in my brain. That property is unbelievably complex. That means it is composed of literally billions of parts that are put together in a structure. Like a house is the property of being a house is just a structural property of a whole bunch of bricks and other things put in a certain arrangement. Yeah. Pain is not built up of parts. Mm. I, I don't even know what that means. A pain is a simple quality, namely a feeling of hurt. That's what a pain is. So yeah. So you can't explain the emergence or the appearance, I'm going to say, excuse me, mm -hmm. of simple qualitative conscious properties by combinatorial patterns because those are only good for explaining new structures like H2O yeah. from hydrogen and oxygen. You get a new property, but it's a structural property. It isn't a new kind of property. Yeah. So if you leave consciousness as an irreducible thing, there is there will be, in principle, no naturalist explanation. And so all you can do is shout emergence. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, but, you know, that's not that's just slapping a label yeah. on it. I, that's not a solution. I want to know how that could happen. Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. And I am. Uh, it reminded me of your uh, your book review of Nagel Thomas Nagel's um, uh, Mind and Cosmos, and I think you titled it "Slumping Towards Theism," which was yeah, just slouching toward <laughs> slouching toward theism. Slouching, yeah. slouching. It was so fantastic. And you, you one of your main points uh, was Nagel's bringing in teleology because he he's a good philosopher. He recognizes it has to be here, but then he's kind of tiptoeing around. He's 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 slouching towards, but he doesn't want to acknowledge theism, even though it seems. All of his arguments are, are pointing that way. Yes. Yeah. Well, you, you, you put your finger on it. And yeah. what, what Nagel realized is that the standard naturalist creation account of Darwinian evolution and the periodic table where atoms and molecules rearrange, you're never going to explain the origin of life. Right. Because the, the probabilities of it are ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So it's just you're not going to do it. Yeah. Secondly, you won't be able to explain how in four billion years on Earth, as he claims, you're going to get the kind of diversity of life we have. It just is too quick. Uh, so he said that whole approach is, is bankrupt. Plus, yeah. you can't explain uh, the existence of consciousness, like mm -hmm. I just told you. And he, you can't explain... How there, why there are creatures that that crave and seek for value and, and goodness and that sort of thing. Yeah. So he says the way to solve the problem is not to appeal to God. He, he says that's for two reasons. One, I don't want there to be a God. Right. I just rather there not be such a being because I don't want to have to answer to, to a God. And he admits that. The second right. Super is, honest, yeah. The second reason, and this is nothing but an aesthetic preference now. It's an mm -hmm. aesthetic preference. It's like, I like McDonald's better than Burger King. That's all it is. Namely, he says, I prefer solutions to problems that stay within the universe. Yeah. Well, my question is, how are you going to solve the origin of the universe, dude? I mean, right. you can't appeal to something in the universe to do that. Yeah. So, you know, so, so. He, he says the solution is to start with particles that already have consciousness in them. Yeah. That's the panpsychism. And just attribute teleology to the development of the universe so that the universe actually changes over time in order to achieve the realization of rational, morally interested agents. Yeah. Well, well whoop-de-doo. I mean... You know, how, how interesting that that solves the problem because yeah. it's set it up just to do that. But there's no independent reason to believe that his view is true. There is for theism. 
Yeah, and and it seems like uh, maybe I'm wrong here, but it seems like implicit in that model uh, from Nagel is that there's this guiding force. There's the teleology, but there's no guider. There's no personal in, in, until you get to consciousness. But it seems like in order for you to get there, in order for there to be telos, there has to be a mind first. Well, I, I, I agree with you. Now, Aristotle did have a, a, a concept of teleology that was latent within different kinds of species and substances. That, mm -hmm. But he did postulate a, a, an unmoved mover, God, mm -hmm. in order to explain the, them being drawn toward the end that was in them. Yeah. Otherwise, they would have just sat there statically. So, yeah. but I'm much more inclined to go with you. I mean, if there is a purposeful activity, mm -hmm. that just raises in my mind wh why. Yeah. Uh, well, and I know where purposes come from people. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, there's so much, so many, so many things I want to trace down. Uh, but I want to get to your argument from consciousness because I, so we would here. Um, we, we've touched on it. We've been circling on it, but uh, you give a deductive form of it and you talk about three different issues for, for adjudication when it comes to consciousness, their basicality, naturalness, and ep epistemic values. Can you uh, briefly sketch those for us? Is that even something you can briefly sketch? Well, if you have two theories that are competing with one another to explain something, one thing you have to ask is, is the thing you're explaining basic mm -hmm. in one theory, meaning it's a fundamental entity and it doesn't need any explanation because it's basic or is it derived? That is the theory doesn't count it as basic. So it needs explanation. So for example, um, motion in Newton's view, uniform linear motion was basic. You did not need to explain motion. Yeah. You needed to explain changes of motion for Aristotle. Motion was uh, not basic. So if something was moving, you needed to offer an explanation for mm -hmm. it. I believe consciousness is basic for the theist, but I don't think it is not basic for the naturalist. So they have to give an explanation for where it could be, come from. And we don't in the sense that we start with it. Naturalness is, does this entity fit naturally into the theory? Example, in neo-Darwinism, Evolution takes place in a series of very tiny steps. Uh, in punctuated equilibrium theory, <clears throat> evolution takes place in larger, quicker jumps. Suppose the fossil record indicates that we, we, there are these big jumps uh, from one kind of thing to another. Well, that fits more naturally into the punctuated equilibrium theory than it does the neo-Darwinist view, which would predict there wouldn't be any such thing. So right. for them to just label emergence on that, or, <laughs> well, that's just a jump, that's all. Well, yeah, yeah I know it's a jump. <laughs> How could there be jumps on your theory? That, right. So that's another problem. And then in value, epistemic values are just characteristics of a good theory. Simplicity, ex explain, explanatory scope. Um, meet uh, is accurate with respect to the facts and things like that. And uh, so uh, naturalism, I think, could have, it appeals to simplicity. Uh, why postulate a God if you don't need to? Well, the theist says you need to. Yeah. Uh, but even if you didn't, uh, ours, our theory explains reality better than yours. So simplicity is not a huge value for us. Yeah. We hold explanatory power to be a better value. So that's how that fits in. Okay. So you could, uh, that last point. So, I mean, all of it's so helpful, but you could appeal to simplicity and say, well, just P that's my worldview. It's simple. It's P. So yeah, but it has zero explanatory power. So simplicity can't be the only uh, well, criteria. Very good illustration. Very good. Um, so I wanted to move on to the deductive uh, argument from consciousness. Would you? I have it written out here. Would it be better for me to read it, or just let you kind of uh, summarize it for well, us? I can't. I can't cite all the premises. Yeah. Off the top of my head. Okay. Okay. Let me read it then. So uh, there's a there's a, a few of them here for the listeners. Mental events are genuine, non-physical mental entities that exist. Two specific mental and physical um, event types are regularly uh, correlated. Three. There is an explanation for these correlations. For personal explanation is different from natural scientific explanation. 
Five, the explanation for these correlations is either a personal or a natural scientific explanation. Six, the explanation is not a natural scientific one. Seven, therefore, the explanation is a personal one. Eight, if the explanation is personal, then it is theistic. And then nine, therefore, the explanation is theistic. And so it's a, it's a tight argument. You guys can look it up. You can find it. You go and buy this book. Uh, go buy the, uh, the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology. And there's a chapter and a summary in there. I wanted to look specifically at um, the explanation. If the explanation is personal, then it's theistic. Um, there, there, you have spent a lot of time working through all these and, and motivating all these. Um, so can you explain this one? Uh, this is one that I was really interested in. Uh, all right. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, a personal explanation is like uh, ones we use in a law court. Mm-hmm. We don't cite, you know, we find a person is guilty. And, and what's our reason? Well, we don't appeal to the laws of physics or chemistry. Well, because H2O is water. What we do is we explain it in terms of this person had the ability to do this crime. Yeah. Uh, they weren't like five years old. They had the power to do it. Uh, they ha- they had the means and the motive and intention to do it. So if we can as- uh, ascribe a motive and intention, the means that was used, let's say, and those things, we offer a personal explanation for why we think this person committed this crime. We do this all the time. Why mm-hmm. is the table set that way? Well, our neighbors uh, love Chinese food and we're having them over. That's why. Yeah. All right. Now, we're dealing with the existence of consciousness in the universe. It yeah. appeared on this planet. And pro- I don't think anywhere else, but if it did, you still got the same problem. Mm-hmm. How, how, if, if, if we need a personal explanation to explain why consciousness showed up in the first place and why it is regularly correlated with certain brain states, so that we find correlations between the mental and the, and the physical. And if we're going to do this by appealing to an agent that's that acted to make it that way, I'm fishing around and asking, well, what is the most likely candidate for that agent? Yeah. It could be a polytheistic explanation. Like Hume said, well, maybe, maybe there were a committee of gods that did this, but there's where simplicity comes right, in. Right. Right. Uh, if you can explain it with one, there's absolutely no reason to go to more than one. And um, this this being doesn't need to be a necessary being, but you get that from other arguments. And mm-hmm. so this is a part of the cumulative case. Okay. You do get, in my view, a single theistic deity that is the best explanation for how there could be such a thing as finite conscious states in us and why they're regularly correlated with these material states. Yeah. That's why. Okay. Yeah. That's really helpful. And I've, I've heard the, uh, you, this characterization between personal explanation and scientific explanation um, from, from various different sources. I really like uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this in meditations and a tool meditation and tool shed. Where he's looking at a, a beam of light and you can look at it, you can study it scientifically or you can turn your head and look along it. And I've also heard uh teapot you know why is the teapot boiling like you were talking about for dinner um why is the teapot boiling well because at this barometric pressure you know you can give a scientific explanation or you could say because i want some tea would you like some also and there's that personal explanation and you're arguing here that consciousness needs that personal explanation and then from there uh that god is the personal explanation for the personal explanation uh which is needed for consciousness and so because con- we because you and i are conscious and because that's irreducible then following this argument, God exists as the uh, conscious creator. We, look, we're all stuck with consciousness. I don't mm-hmm. care what anybody says. It's it's real. I know right. it. Right. People who say it's an illusion, an illusion is the state of consciousness. I right. I what it even means to say consciousness. No escape. Yeah. An illusion, good grief. So we got to ask the question, how could there be such a thing? And the only answer is, is that it came to exist from nothing. That's the emergentist answer. That's right. on starter for me. Right. And psychism, you start with conscious particles. There are huge problems of theism. Yeah. I think theism is better than the other two. Yeah. You can try to get rid of it by reducing it. That just hasn't worked. And, yeah. and more and more admitting it doesn't work. Yeah. Oh, I love that. 
Yeah. It's a terrible problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a fun one to press because we have this, it's so great being a Christian. We, we, that's our base level. And it's not because we're so smart, but it's because he came and loved us first. And then we look at our worldview and go, Oh, we have explanations for these. Why don't you come on? Why don't you come on over here? Why don't you come join us over here? Exactly. Yeah. Um, One, one final uh, bonus question, if we could sneak it in. Um, Why has self-consciousness not been uh, given as much treatment as consciousness has in philosophy. It, is self-consciousness po- important or is that just something for the continental folks to worry about? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I, 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 self-consciousness is very important. Uh, and it, it is actually, I think, what distinguishes human consciousness from animal consciousness. Right, me too. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the reason it hasn't been too much of an issue is because the the more fundamental issue that has been raging is what the heck is consciousness in and of itself? We got enough to pray over to deal with that one. Okay. Uh, so when we get progress there, we'll, and some have talked about self-consciousness, but it hasn't been at the forefront because of the broader implications yeah. of, of, of consciousness, if it's real. Okay. Okay. That's helpful. Well, Dr. Morton, this has been so awesome. This has been a dream come true. I really appreciate all of oh, your time. My privilege. My privilege. Yeah. I, would, I would love to uh, send you another invitation sometime. We could we, we talk bolt, Boltzmann brains and emergence and, uh, yeah, and yeah. all that good stuff. I would love yeah. to, to continue this conversation. We will do it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God. <laughs>